0: Welcome to episode number four of Metascam. We are podcast dissecting scams one fraudster at a time. And now, from the excellence in podcast studios, it's time for another episode of Metascam. We break down scammers' approaches, tricks, misdirections, and other tools they use and present you with our direct analysis. This is Peter.
1: And this is Andy coming up here in episode number four of MetaScam. We're going to talk about an Airbnb scam that's going around, trust scams, and I want to talk to Peter about why trust scams actually work. The information presented in this show is based on personal opinion and should be taken as such. Consult your personal attorney before making any financial decision. And hey, if you want to get in touch with us here at Metascam, that's pretty easy to do. You can send us an email at hello at Metascam.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at Metascam Show. Peter, a scam that's going around right now is an Airbnb scam. Airbnb is an online marketplace and hospitality service that enables people to lease or rent short-term lodging, including vacation rentals, apartment rentals, homestays, hostel beds, or hotel rooms. So basically people use Airbnb instead of booking into a normal hotel. Yeah, I've heard a lot
0: about them. I know a lot of friends who have used them. I'm very happy with it. I have personally have not, have not used it. Well, how can it be used by uh, scammers?
1: Well, let me start off by saying the Airbnb is very safe to use. And this scam can happen with any type of short-term rental situation. It just so happens that this one was submitted using Airbnb. So I want to make that perfectly clear that we're not throwing them under the bus. It just happens to be the scam that's kind of prevalent right now.
0: Okay, so how does that start? Someone has a need, maybe a vacation rental or something to get online. They look at different options and they choose one in particular that they want to contract for short term.
1: Exactly. So they find the first one they want. They go over, they make a deal. They say, yep, this is the place I want to to stay at. They go in, they show up on property. Now, a lot of times when you show up on an Airbnb property, the owner of the property isn't even there. They'll have an app that opens the door. It's, it's all electronic keys. They can give you access to it via Bluetooth. It's pretty cool. When you show up, there's a little bit of change. They say, hey, by the way, there's some fish on property. There's some expensive fish. I need you to take care of them. The feeding instructions are right there. You just have to feed them in the morning. No big deal.
0: And that wasn't mentioned at all in the
1: Not mentioned contract. anywhere else in the contract. Uh-huh. So they show up, check in. There's some fish they need to feed. And they say, well, all right, well, it's a beautiful place. and I want to stay here. And then they, you know, they, they go to take care of the fish. So they feed the fish according to schedule, but the fish die, Peter.
0: Whoa. So dead the fish. food maybe wasn't appropriate for these little
1: guys. Something happened, but these fish didn't make it. Then what happens? Well, the owner was going to show up before checkout, which is usually kind of unusual. And they see the dead fish. And they say, you know what? These fish are $500 a piece. Here's my paperwork. Here's my receipts. These fish are $500 a piece, and you killed them. And there's three fish in that tank, so you owe me $1,500 to replace these fish.
0: Now, that creates a problem because a lot of people, well, there's actually no real liability there because it's not in the lease. But it seems to some people must bite on that because otherwise it wouldn't be a successful scam.
1: I'm going to give you points on the analogy for biting on that. That's pretty good. <laughs> but, yes, they do. They feel obligated. They told these people they would take care of their fish. They had a wonderful state at this Airbnb. And they've made, you know, they, they have really positive feelings from that stay. And now the fish are dead. Now they feel horrible. So naturally, they're going to want to pay what amounts to a ransom fee, but they'll pay it.
0: Well, the thing is, they probably are compassionate toward toward animals in general. So And they feel sorry that these fish died. And the owner is probably, it's not just an investment in the fish. It's also, it's like a pet. Uh, so they might feel that. They might also feel they feel this is better to make the payment rather than having something over their head because maybe the landlord might, might uh, state that they're, he's going to sue them or something else. And so just make the payment and move on and try to forget about it.
1: And that's exactly what happened. So what's going on here is th- this is a legitimate rental. It's a legitimate Airbnb rental. But what has happened is this is either traded hands, somebody else is managing the property, or it's just been around long enough to get enough positive reviews on Airbnb before this scam is launched.
0: But how can the owner of these fish, let's say, show that they've, they're worth
1: $500? Counterfeit documents. It's the same way anybody uh, does our, the fraudulent checks. They just come up with a receipt that they've printed themselves. Uh, even they can come up with like what looks like a pedigree for the fish. It's all just fraudulent documents. But the fish themselves are cheap. You know, dime show fish that they got probably at the fair. You know, when you go to the carnival and you win those little goldfish in a bag.
0: So how can someone protect themselves from this type of scam? I would I would go in and I would say, I hate fish. Take these things out. Here. That was not <laughs> in the contract. I just, uh, I just don't like them. I don't like them. Like, I don't want to do anything with them. I don't want to feed them. I don't want to see them.
1: If it's not in the contract, you shouldn't be responsible for it. Most states will say if there's an addendum to a contract then most, that both parties need to agree on that in writing, have some signatures. So if you show up and something's not in the contract, by all means, now there's a red flag that should come up. Wait a minute. If this wasn't in the contract. I'm not going to sign anything that says that I'm going to be responsible for these fish. And that's why usually this, the owner of the, of the property is going to be on site when this happens. Because there has to be the verbal communication at least for the verbal agreement to take care of the fish. So first of all, don't, don't agree to it in writing or verbally, just don't agree to it. Say, no, I'm not going to do it. The problem is now you've traveled how many miles to show up to this Airbnb. What are you going to do? They kind of got you unless you can find another place to stay. Or if you can get the owner of the location to say, okay, we're going to not take care of the fish. And that's, perfectly fine with them because remember, they don't have a lot of money invested in these fish. They'll just wait for the next person to come along.
0: I think this is uh, one of uh, but could be potentially many different examples of uh, this type of scam is basically where you have a basic contract or lease or agreement. And then how do you prove or disprove someone's accusations that you owe money for something that maybe a, you did, you did not cause any damage or was not your responsibility? That could even be as simple as renting a place and all of a sudden they want to uh, have a fee because you've you perhaps damaged some property there, whether it's a rental property, whether it's a rental car. What I usually do in many circumstances is go ahead and I take I photograph everything before. before I, I, I take possession of it so that in afterwards, when you're returning, uh, that property when you're returning that rental car and if they say well you know there's some damage here I have proof of those photographs this is the condition that I received that
1: property in and that's a beautiful thing to do and you can take pictures of the fish and hopefully if there's a fish expert they could prove that those fish weren't in the best and healthiest conditions but that's a lot to go through and that's what they get and that's why it's a fish because they know that you're not going to go through all that trouble To prove that that you did damage to those fish Or didn't do damage to the fish They know you're not going to go through all those steps So that's why they use fish Fishy It's quite fishy, yes But you make an excellent point Any type of contract that you have with anybody If there's any addendum to that contract That is going to positively or negatively affect you That needs to be in writing And both parties need to agree on it It's often said that a verbal contract Is worth the paper it's written on So you want something in writing, you want the stipulations in writing, you want to know what's going to happen if you don't follow through with something or if there's damages. Take the time, and any state's going to give you time to review a contract. You don't have to sign on site, you can go back, most places give you 72 hours to review it. So usually when this scam is successful, it's catching the mark off guard. They've traveled a long way to get there, it's a beautiful place, they have been planning for this for a long time, they just want to get in the room, they just want to get established, this addendum to the contract is presented. Hey, you need to take care of the fish. They're like, yep, sure, it's fish. No big deal. I can do this. They feed the fish. The fish die. The guy comes back says, you owe me money for the fish because the fish are now dead. And the person usually, just like you said, wants just to pay and get it over with. Right now, Airbnb says they're investigating it, looking into it, and taking it case by case as it happens. Once you check in, if there's any change, notify Airbnb, is what they're saying. And Airbnb will stand by the renter with the contract that they signed with Airbnb. So that's the biggest recourse out of here is you say, no, I'm not. I don't owe you anything because this is the contract. The contract doesn't stipulate anything about the fish. I owe you no money about, for the fish whatsoever. Just say no. I'm not comfortable with it. Don't want to do it. I hate fish. Whatever the case might be. Just say you're not interested, not comfortable, don't want to do it, and then that scammer will move on to the next. They realize it's not in their best interest to pursue you anymore. But I just wanted everybody to be aware that this scam is going around out there and is prevalent, and it's not going to be limited to just Airbnb because once Airbnb is burned, in other words, once the, uh, the scammers realize they can't pull this one off anymore with Airbnb, they're just going to move on to the next one, whatever short-term contract situation comes into mind. Right now, for me, I think the next uh, iteration of this is going to move over to the rideshare applications, Uber and Lyft. There's going to be something that happens. Hey, that tear in my seat wasn't there. You owe me money. So there's going to be something that happens.
0: Well, there actually was a uh, recently, I don't know if, it was, if there was something to it or not, but uh, one of the Uber drivers allegedly uh, stated that the passenger had thrown up in his vehicle and was claiming that he had to clean it. He had this outrageous cleaning fee, and uh, so that was very hard for the passenger to disprove. And I don't know what actually happened down the road with this, uh, but that's an example of, of uh, a driver claiming that there's been damage to his
1: vehicle. I guess in that situation, the driver just has to realize that the, uh, the passenger is inebriated and may not remember everything that happened during that ride and takes advantage of it. That's interesting. I have, to look, I have to look around for that one, see if it's going around.
0: Yeah, it was funny that uh, someone did make a comment regarding that, that suggestion that every time you take a, a, a ride share, just take a photograph of the interior of the vehicle when you depart. But I think that's a little bit excessive.
1: It's a little excessive. And um, a lot of times I know people personally that I know that use those uh, services a lot are using them for uh, personal safety they've maybe had a little too much a to drink, don't feel comfortable behind the wheel, which is perfectly fine, take an Uber home. And then they do. So they're not going to be thinking about taking a picture of the Uber when they walk into the back of it. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm going to look out for that one. But just beware of this, uh, this particular goldfish scam that is out there. Now, Peter wanted to talk to you a little bit about how your business encourages employees to speak. You said in our last show that uh, you can incentivize an employee to actually talk and communicate with management when they see something suspicious. We tell someone, well, these are the employees, these are my fellow coworkers." I don't want to squeal on them because then, you know, I'm that guy. I'm the rat. So how do you get an employee past that, that mental hurdle? Andy,
0: that's a good point.
1: The... In this, in this day and age, when
0: there is a social engineer or someone else that's trying to take advantage of the company by penetrating the company, uh, hopefully with some financial gain at the end of that. And there's usually a number of different types of attempts to different people in the company and just one individual bringing that, what they proceed to be as a potential threat to the attention of security can literally if it's a valid threat, if it's investigated, it could save the company thousands, if not millions of dollars. So it's very important for a firm to, to establish that communication, ensure that their employees establish open communication with them without any fear of retribution to the employee. There has to be sort of a create an environment where it's safe to provide that information, where there might even be an incentive Uh, to to provide that information. We deal with companies. We we encourage them to set up the flow of communication uh, and make it very apparent to the employees, this is the type of things that you need to be on the lookout for because every day there are firms, including our firm, that are susceptible to these types of attacks, whether it be phishing attacks, whether it be calls in by, by someone using a spoof service and trying to get information. Every day we receive these, these, these calls or these attempts. What do they look like? And give examples of what they may look like or what they may sound like and encourage them whenever there's a doubt just bring it to the attention. Sometimes it might be totally legitimate and there should not be any retribution for bringing uh, something to the attention that maybe uh, is legitimate, but that should be encouraged and show that the employee is generally thinking about the welfare of the company. So there's different ways to have the employee report this information. It can be full disclosure to include who they are, their their contact information in case security wants to get back in touch with them for some further details. Uh, however, there may be cases where this may involve reporting something regarding a fellow coworker, and that might be even more of a concern to a person that's thinking about reporting it. It might be very apprehensive about blowing that whistle on a fellow coworker or on a a manager, perhaps. So there's ways to set up a system to do this anonymously, whether it's a box where people can provide comments or, or forward uh, reports, incident reports through that box and not, not have their name uh, placed in there. Or, or many companies will even use a hotline where they can call in. They do not need to disclose who they are, They just report what they've seen and provide all the pertinent details and the company will decide how they go forward and, and investigate that. So when I say that we want to incentivate it, I think, if, first of all, Make the employees aware that this is they're safeguarding their company, they're safeguarding the profitability of their company, they're safeguarding their future employment. That first of all is should be an incentive that, of the welfare of the company as well as their their employment. Second of all, might look for other ways that we can incentivate people, especially if there's a way for them to if they are encouraged to provide their own information, their contact information. Perhaps we can give them a company can, can give them some sort of small reward, small but significant. It could be a, a lunch, it could be a certificate for, for, for going out and dining, it could be a gift card. You know, what if it's 50 bucks? 50 bucks is nothing compared to what a company could stand to lose if, uh, if a report was not filed and that report ends up in, a, in a, significant, a significant attack against the company.
1: When I was working for defense contractors, some of the things that we did there, uh, first of all, we knew every day that there was a potential of somebody actually conducting a penetration test against the company. And it was our job to be on the alert for that. And if we saw something, report it and there was a reward for it. That kind of changed everything to be you didn't know if it was somebody inside. It could be the guy next to you, could have been approached by the pen test company to be the penetration tester for the day to try to listen information out of you. So they would actually use us and other employees to mystery shop, if you will, our own company. So when we knew that could potentially happen, then reporting something that we saw, we didn't know if it was an actual attack or a test attack. So we had that that weight lifted off our shoulders because we knew we weren't squealing. We knew that if we didn't say something and, my, and the guy next to me was doing a, a, an actual pen test and I failed and I was the target, Now, I could be in trouble. So, by having and flipping it that way, releasing us from that burden of being the squealer and being the rat and being the the, the stool, it really freed us up to actually communicate with our employer. Now, they also incentivized by giving us lunches and bucks and, and dollars and gift cards. But the other little thing that we had going on that I really liked is if we saw something, it didn't matter what it was, it could have been a bug in a program, a typo on a website. It didn't matter if we brought that to the attention of whoever our immediate manager was. So if I'm in middle management, upper management, the person who's my director, if I go to them and I report the issue to them, there is some type of reward for that. And like I said, it could be as insignificant as a typo and it could be something as severe as, hey, I think there's a key logger on this computer. Being able to go and report those immediately and having a reward system based on that was phenomenal. Now, whether or not the company acted on everything we said, who knows? That's not up to us to decide, though. What was up to the employee to decide was to come forward with that information. Now, and as I said, we were approached by the penetration testing company that was constantly pen testing us. And they would say, hey, we want you to go find out the password to this particular system that we know you don't have access to because your upper management told us you're not on that program. And then I would go to an employee and go, hey, I just need to get access to this making a, a, a change to it. And I don't have admin rights. What's the password? And if they would then give me the password, well, then I've just successfully penetre- you know, penetrated the, the system. And now I have admin rights to the, a system I shouldn't have. And let me tell you, from a personal standpoint, that sucks. Because now I have, they're asking me to uh, really go out on a limb and, and expose myself and expose the trust that I have with another employee. And you would see people all the time, or I would see them all the time, and I never said anything, and I probably should have, who, when they would ask a question to, to another employee, they would be shaking their head no. <laughs> so there wasn't a, it was a nonverbal communication. Like they would say, hey, Peter, is there any way, and while I'm talking, I'm shaking my head or nodding it left or right and saying no, is there any way you can give me the password to this system? And I'm nodding to you no, know, and you go, no, because now you know that's a pen test, and now you go report it. So, yes, there are some ways around it, and, uh, but it was something that it made it a little bit of a game that we knew anytime there could be one of these tests going on. We don't want to create paranoia.
0: Uh, you conduct pen testing, you may have a, a, a social engineering awareness test in advance of that, so they, you're educating the employees of the company how social engineering takes place, what are the different ploys, what are the different things that you may need to be on the lookout for, and if they know there's gonna be an active test going on, they're gonna be really on the lookout uh, to the point of maybe being a little bit over par- paranoid initially, but if that if that is just done and nothing more is talked about or said about it, after a few weeks, after a few months, people will go back to their normal, i would say careless, <laughs> uh, operating procedures when it comes to these type of things and not even be thinking about it. So that's why it's important not to just make a lot of hype about it and have, and know have them know that there's a test going on and then and and then and, and and then forget about it, but have it ongoing and making sure you're providing feedback. And a company like ours conducting pen testing will provide direct feedback to management, and and that's our responsibility to to outline the parameters of the test and and provide the results to the management. And then it's up to the management how they want to. Uh, act upon that information. We, of course, give advice, but it's up to the management how they want to act. Do they want to say anything? Do they want to engage the employees? Do they want to share this information with the employees? What's very important, though, is that management does not take any adverse action to anyone who maybe did not handle a particular task appropriately. The idea is to educate reinforce procedures, not to create a culture where if something happens and I handle it in, incorrectly, I'm gonna be purged. This is not a communist environment where if you don't follow in line and you do something a little bit off, you're gonna be purged from the company and so uh, we gotta be very careful, we gotta be paranoid, we gotta be secretive. No, it's, you're trying to promote open communication and look for ways to incentivize the employee and, and recognize employees that, that do what, things very, very well. And it might not be just the employee, maybe it creates a culture within a company, depends how large that company is, where even different departments can sort of, let's say, compete against each other for, for how many different things that they've been able to uncover or notice or report. So it becomes sort of a, activity, a social activity within that company of creating, creating that community. What I usually do also where I find to get you get another hook into an employee's interest in being on the lookout for these types of social engineering employees or scams is that this is the same sort of methodology awareness that they can bring back into their own personal life, back at home, with their spouses, with their children, with the, you know themselves and their their communication with other people or things that may come their way. It's not just the company. That can be scammed. Uh, individuals on a daily basis also have different types of attacks against them. So, creating this overall awareness is also very good for the employee in their personal life.
1: If somebody were interested in having uh, some penetration testing conducted against their business, how could it get a hold of uh, strategic risk management? Sure. The uh,
0: best way to contact us would be calling 407 475 0154. And let's
1: ask for Peter. I'm looking forward to this. Um, Maybe we should do some pen testing here. We're small. Small or large. There's always an opportunity. There's always an opportunity. I like this. Peter, a common scam that's going around, it has been around for probably ever, is a trust scam. And in this case, we're going to wrap it around a dating scam or a romance scam. And this is where a, a person, and it doesn't matter any orientation that they have, they're seeking that companionship. And somebody reaches out to them, and they learn so much about the other person so fast. They learn their habits, and then they learn stuff they like, their preferences, even their inconsistencies they'll learn. If something is a little quirky off of them, and they'll learn those little quirks, those little things. And then they manipulate that person into... Well, falling in love. And now they're smitten and they have these great communications with this other person. They that little whatever was missing in their lives, that void is now being filled. They remember things. They remember your name. They remember your birthday, your favorite meals, the movie you were watching. It's it's almost like they have an entire database about you. And then once you're just feeling like this is just going somewhere and maybe you're ready to take that next step and actually meet this person face to face in real life, something happens. Now they've got a problem. They run into an issue and they need money. And man, you are just so smitten with this person that, okay, what do you need? I will do anything. And you say, well, it's just not that big of a deal. It's, you know, it's like 150 bucks here, 20 bucks there, $30 here gas money, gift cards, maybe, maybe new shoes for the kids, who knows what. And then you're giving them this money and then they say, you know what? I really need to meet you in person. I want to give you this check in person. Well, I just got this other thing to take care of and then I'll meet you. And then you never see that person again. And now you're out all this money and worse. You're left with what could be a broken heart. And then you're left to sit there and realize that you just got taken. And it might have been for $500,000, whatever it might have been for, but you got taken or this person got taken because they let their emotions and their emotional state get the best of them. So what are some red flags we can look at in these relationship and trust scams? Very interesting topic it's larger than most
0: people believe and it continues to grow the internet has make it so has making this so prevalent so easy to conduct these scams that it can be even a 12-year-old kid who is actually the scammer in the old days prior to the internet these scams did take place predominantly though it was the individual the scammer finding a way to establish direct contact and actually meet with the target perhaps looking through the newspaper and finding the obituary column and if a if a an individual died and they say who are the survivor and, uh, the spouse and other family members go in and somehow establishing contact with that spouse especially if uh, she's likely to have a lot of money and developing that relationship she's also probably emotionally having some emotional issues due to the loss of a, of a spouse and then having this other person eventually enter her life uh, the manipulator is able to play upon those emotions and Pretty much do the same thing, but it might take a little bit longer and not quite as prevalent. But now with the Internet and so many people putting their profiles on these dating sites, it's pretty much just pick and choose when it comes to the scammer's choice of who they're going to go at. It doesn't take long at all for them to learn a lot of really sensitive information about you because if you posted your profile and what 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 your passions are right what your likes and your dislikes where you live what your what your your situation is your family situation etc they already can decide this is the individual that I am going to target and develop their own ploy about how they're going to what they're going to say when they first contact you and then basically it is a continual exchange where that scammer is going to be based on what you said, they are going to be in the receive mode. They're going, to, they're going to log all that information that you said, and they're going to turn that around and really use that to manipulate you and push the right buttons. And, and as you said, basically, it's creating this emotional bond. The victim enters into an emotional bond with the scammer. Some of the red flags are where they profess to be in love with a person. The scammer professes to be in love with a person maybe within the first or second interaction online. Now, how real is that? But they'll profess this love. They might say, oh, this is destiny or God has brought us together and all these different things. And the one thing about emotions when it comes to romance, think about it. We've all, Most of us have been there one or more times when we get this infatuation, okay? Infatuation, it overtakes everything else I had a wise man told me one time when I was young he said don't kiss your girl at the front gate love is blind but the neighbors ain't (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I love that. So think about it. You know, think about the time that maybe you fell in love with, with, with a person and it's just, you can't wait to have another exchange with that person to see that person again, or to be able to talk to that person via telephone or these days being able to chat with them. It's just like, you're just, it's almost like an adrenaline rush and it's almost like you're addicted to that stimulant, right? You yeah. just can't wait to see that person. So you're running more on emotions versus running on common sense. So, when a scammer might do a number of different things that you should be suspect of, you might not be really even thinking about that. You're you're actually very, very blind. And it might be other people around you that might say, listen, that is so weird. How could you fall in love with this person so quickly? Where are they from? Have you ever met them? How do you know what this person is saying is true? And And you might just be, well... I trust them. I trust them. And you just totally, you just totally absorbed by that. They might shortly after establishing contact with you, send you some gifts, maybe uh, some flowers, maybe some candy. And that's for two reasons, basically. First of all, it's also helps develop the emotional attachment to that person. But they're also, they want to verify the address where you live. They're getting more, they're verifying the information that you're giving to them. And they're, they're getting that address. They're getting more information from you so that they can use that later on. How might they use that later on? There's a lot of variations with these types of scams. Well, first of all, they're going to, for the most part, say they're living in a foreign country. Many times they'll say that they are a U.S. citizen currently living and working abroad maybe a very successful in business uh, and they're gonna be there for a short period of time or an extended period of time they're they're gonna say they're single they're gonna say that they have no one else there that can help them when a situation arises uh, they might say that they have a mother or father who maybe is of African descent a lot of these scams do come out of Western Africa Nigeria uh, uh, is one of the big ones actually Nigeria it's a uh, funny Andy. I just came back from uh, traveled up to the Midwest Wisconsin where my my family lives. My mother turned 90, and I wanted to have a surprise birthday party for her. So it, it it all worked out really, really well. I took a lot of photographs. I wanted to develop those photographs before leaving because I wanted to put an album together for her. So I went into a Walgreens in my hometown, which is like 14,000 individuals that live there. Went into a Walgreens to get these pictures printed out at the kiosk. They had two kiosks there. One was not working. So the, the other one that was working, there was a, a gentleman at that kiosk. In addition to printing out pictures, they, you can do other services there, such as uh, Western Union. So I was waiting behind this gentleman. He was about, I would say, eighty, eighty-five years old, and he was, he was trying to send a wire uh, transfer via via Western Union. I don't normally get into people's business, but. I was waiting and it was taking some time. And so I just looked at the screen and I saw he was looking for the location where he was sending the money to and he pressed Nigeria. Oh no. Seriously, I'm thinking, what's the likelihood that an 80 year old man in my town of 14,000 in the Midwest knows or has a family member in Nigeria that needs money? Yeah. So I'm thinking, my it was gut wrenching. I'm thinking this poor guy. This guy. This guy could be my father. You know, and I really thought I somehow I need to at least attempt to get word to him. And if I thought if I contact if I if I said sir, what are you doing? He's be like, well, this is none of your business. Right. right? So I I went up to a, a young lady that was working there in that department. I said, listen, I am very concerned about uh, what this gentleman might be doing because I noticed that he's sending money to he's trying to t- send money to Nigeria. Around, I think it was around five hundred dollars. I know that there are certain places like Nigeria where there's so much fraud going on. Every day people are, are, are being taken up on this. So I'm concerned about him. And so she, she walked up to him and said, sir, you know, how's it going? I say, thank you for using our services here. We do monitor some of these transactions when we see that money is being sent to certain countries because we know there's a lot of uh, scams that go on. And so I want to make sure that, that you know that, who this individual you are sending this money to. The gentleman looked at her and just smiled and says, oh, I, I know this person very well now who knows i doubt that when you say you know somebody very well is it just because i've engaged them in a dialogue back and forth on the internet and i feel like i know them really really well or do i actually know them Have i ever seen them face to face he pushed the button the transaction went forward i I just fear that it's not just one transaction. Usually, yeah. what they do is they loop you in for a number of transactions uh, over time. As far they will do it as long as they can milk you really sure. of, of your money. So one of, one of the variations to this, okay, they they sent you a some gifts, a flowers, whatever. They have your address, and then they'll say, hey, I have an, I'm having a problem here. I have a check that's drawn on a U.S. bank, and I can no way that I can cash this over in Nigeria, whatever country I'm in. Could I send this check to you? I can endorse it and send this check to you. You deposit it in your bank, and then you can wire the money to me via Western Union. And you think, well, that's that's easy. I, I'll be very willing to help you out. And so that, that you receive that check, and you go to your bank, and if the check looks very genuine, which many times they look very genuine, the bank will take will, will take that check. And uh, you might think, well, the, the, the check is good, even after a couple days, and then you send that money via Western Union, you have no recourse once that money is sent via Western Union, and then your bank contacts you maybe a week later, maybe ten days later, say, "Oh, that check you have deposited bounced. It's a it's a, it's a illegitimate check where there are no funds in that in that account. You must." Uh, you know, you're on a hook for that money. So all of a sudden you're on a hook for the money that you've actually transferred via Western Union, whether it's $500 or $1,000, whatever be the case. So that's one variation. A lot, as you mentioned, Andy, a lot of times they're coming out of the, the scammers using distress. They may say that they've had a, an emergency situation and they desperately need this money that they don't have maybe it's a they've been in a car wreck there's an injury they're in a hospital many times they've given you a promise that they're going to see you very shortly and you get your hopes up everything's going so fantastic and all of a sudden there's this hiccup they got this issue and they ask for your help every time they ask you for something it's going to be financial that ultimately is what the scammers want they want financial assistance of some kind. So whether it's a hospital bill, whether they or maybe there's some some legal issues, uh, their documents, their travel documents that this fine needs to be paid for them to be able to travel out the country, or maybe it's some money for their airline ticket, whatever the case may be, they're going to be asking you for some help and trying to get you to send the money to them. And then there's always going to be another problem because ultimately their goal is not to travel to meet you because once they meet you, if they try to do that, probably the scam is going to be up. You might going to be able to see through that. But as long as they can keep you on the hook, they will do that. This can go on for weeks, months, years. And unfortunately, many times people that are on the hook, they might mention it to other people, but they will not, you know, when they, they enter a relationship with somebody who could be a scammer, they don't start to do their own sort of vetting of the person until maybe other people might see it and they might suggest it. And we get contacted periodically by family members of individuals who have entered a relationship with somebody and they're smitten, you know, but the family members think there's something not quite right with this. They're very suspicious and they might even contract us to conduct the investigation because of concerns over a family member or a friend. Because many times the the victim really does not believe there's a problem. And he really believed they're helping that individual. And that's the love of their life. This could be their potential soulmate. And they're just so blind that they can't believe. Uh, I actually saw a, I, I don't normally watch Dr. Phil, but there was a episode of, few months ago where there was this uh, lady who actually was on the show because her, her children were very concerned about the scam and she literally had had almost emptied her entire bank account and sent this money over to this this uh, gentleman in, in uh, Africa who was on his way to come to meet her and, and but she never validated or vetted any of this information and ultimately through the help of uh, the show they did send out investigators and they were able to to uh, prove really this guy was a scammer. Mm. She would not believe anything that her children said. She was just so blind about this until the facts were in front of her and then she was completely devastated. She, she, she lost her money, she was embarrassed, and uh, I mean, she was devastated, unfortunately. Yeah. There are some other things that you can do if you are establishing contact with somebody online, especially if that's the person that initiated the contact, look for ways that you might be able to vet that information. A scammer, well, scammer is lying, right? And a lot of times, liars have difficulty in being consistent with the information. So, I would document everything that was said or or written to me if I were an individual that was was uh, trying to verify what someone's telling me. And then later on, during a subsequent conversation, throw out a question and see if that individual is giving you the exact identical information. Many of the scammers, you're not the only victim that that scammer is dealing with. They might be, this is a job. This might be a nine to five job. They're going into a location. They're in contact with a number of people during the day. And they have these ongoing conversations using different names of different people. So, Different, different uh, types of uh, indications might be, what is the time of day that they're in contact with you? Think about if this scam is coming out of Africa, most likely they're in contact with you in your in the evenings, when, when you're at home. They might try to move from that uh, dating site to instant messenger, get you off that dating site. Their profile on that dating site might even disappear shortly after establishing contact with you. And they're going to hit you probably every night. They probably won't hit you on the weekends because they're not working, right? <laughs> right, they're home. <laughs> yeah, they're home. Uh, they're going to ask you for your photographs. They're going to be using a photograph that they probably obtained from some modeling agency where the photograph is going to make them look probably very attractive because maybe it's from a modeling agency. They're going to use a fake name. It's going to be very difficult for you to verify that, right? If it's if this is online. Well, you can say, well, we can do sort of uh, webcam. Yeah, another indication may be they will love to have you on webcam, and they'll encourage that because they want to see you. They're so in love with you, but unfortunately, their webcam's not working. Yeah, something. I don't know what's wrong with it. Something's yeah. broken. So it's it's one way, and that is extremely dangerous because they could very well be recording that webcam. They might ask you, "Hey, mm-hmm. let me see where you live." You know, So you're you're kind of giving them a tour of the house. You're showing them different things, and it might even enter into a realm of things that can be very very dangerous when it comes to doing things online that might be very you would definitely would not want anybody else to know about. So you might be exposing yourself and that's recorded and that could be used later on. So how could, how, what can happen when you come on to this doesn't look right. I want to discontinue this relationship. You challenge the scammer, the scammer, there's a number of different ploys that they can use. If they have a webcam coverage of you and there is something that's potentially embarrassing, they could say, I'm going to send these pictures or this video to your employer because they probably already know where you work because you told them that. Uh, or I'm going to load these up to some social media sites. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, I can't I can't bear to have that happen. And so they'll say that, well, I won't do it if you send me X, Y, Z, it's so much money. And so you send the money and you think, yeah, they're going <laughs> to are, uh, are, are they going to uphold their, their word? Probably not. They're going to ask you for more money. And this thing can continue, continue, continue. Another thing, if you challenge them regarding the scam, they might admit it. They might admit that, yes, they went into this as a scam, but now they've just generally fallen in mm. love with you. And this starts all over again. Uh, and it does happen where they will use that ploy. Of course, they haven't fallen in love with you, but they're evil. They, they know so much about you. They know your emotions and you really are emotionally attached to this person. Even though you know they're bad, you still have that emotional bond and they can continue to manipulate that. What should we do? We, we definitely should be very open from the get-go to try to verify. Remember I mentioned previously, I always mention verify then trust. Yes. Always, the big V, verify for trust and look for ways you can verify that. Uh, additional red flags, of course, we're talking about the time of day, Was who established that contact, what are the things that they're saying, how quickly this is moving along. If they say that they're a, an American, how good is their English? If you start mm, seeing some really weird yeah. things, like whether what they're saying or what they're writing, and it just seems to be really, uh, not a necessarily a native English speaker, that's definitely a should be of concern another variant of this is uh, romance scams when the scammer pretends to be US military personnel overseas this is big and this is growing and even if you go to some of the sites the Department of Defense, maybe the Army will even have like a paragraph there saying, be very, very careful about people who contact you saying that they are members of the of the US military. There's a lot of uh, scammers out there that are using that, that pretext. And why is that easy? or why is that effective? Basically the scammer first of all, can talk to you from a location where he's not necessarily authorized to disclose where he is. It could be out of pocket for a few days because he's going on a particular mission and he can't be in contact with you so he can he can really withhold saying a lot of information if you're asking questions well you know I'm going to be gone for a few days I'm going on a very dangerous mission and you're like you know until you hear from him again you're very worried oh maybe something's happened to them and once again that's playing upon your your emotions right Mm -hmm. and finally when you hear from them again you're so happy oh you know I say just drawing you in drawing you in drawing you in and so you're concerned about their well-being. A lot of times we, th- we think that soldiers are out there. They don't necessarily have, you know, they're, they're, their income is, 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 is very low. It's difficult for them to get different things. And so they, they might have a financial need. They might need something that they could ask for you. Can you, can you, help, up, can you help me out? And so readily you, you, fall in, you can fall into that very, very easily with that type of, of scam that could be ongoing. We need to try to verify if, if someone says that they're whatever person, American, where are they from? Where did they grow up? And most likely, if they are if they're not an American, if they're calling you from West Africa, you should be able to verify a lot of things they'd say with actually doing your own sort of due diligence. those do those places exist that this person's talking about? Does it make sense? Uh, does it track? and be able to, uh, after a period of time, say, no, this does not make any sense. There's too many inconsistencies here. I ask him questions and he, personal questions, and this individual seems to divert the question. Uh, I don't really get a response. He's asking, he or she's asking all this information about me, but when I try to ask information about them, it just seems like it's it's more of a one-way communication. So try to verify, always try to verify. I mean, there are, of course, there are genuine people on dating sites. The fraudsters are setting up their fake profile and it's prolific, but it's still a percentage. It's only a percentage of the real authentic dating sites. So we're not not saying, ooh, don't even go on a dating site because everybody on there is a fraudster, not at all. We just wanna raise the the level of awareness that it is a very convenient, effective tool, resource that fraudsters are using and basically what to be on the lookout for and how to protect yourself uh, from such a scam.
1: Yeah, the biggest thing here that I can think of is don't keep it to yourself. If you feel like you are have just met Mr. or Mrs. Wright and that's the next person for you, share that information with somebody else around you. Because a lot of times you get those blinders on and you can't see it, but other people can. So use that. Trust your friends network and uh, use that to your advantage. Hey, folks, there's a real easy way and safe way that you can actually support us here at Metascam. And that's by using Amazon. You probably already do that. If you head over to metascam.com forward slash Amazon, that's going to take you right over to Amazon's page. Everything works 100% the same fast, secure way that you used to. The difference is we get a little bit of a kickback for every dollar you spend. And that's a way you can show your support for what we're doing here at Metascam on a regular basis. All right, so we've talked about a couple of scams today, Peter. Some some real interesting ones: fish scam, the romance scam. We talked about how penetration testing, how it all kind of works. But I just want to take a, a big step up and kind of look at this from a, the the higher level and kind of talk with you about why these scams seems to why they seem to always work and what is it that a con is looking for in a mark. Okay, there are a number of elements. First of
0: all, a target does have to be identified and I think I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of there's a lot of companies or individuals to pick and choose from when you're a scammer. but you're going to choose that target where you can find a lot of information about that target first of all. And then you're going to pick out of those targets the ones that are going to be soft targets, meaning very e- where you proceed to be very easy versus very difficult maybe to, to, uh, to successfully scam. So if we look at first of all information on targets, as I mentioned earlier in one of our episodes, there's a proliferation of information today that's out there on the internet that a scammer can begin to investigate, can begin to collect information, research, and begin to develop maybe a ploy about how they can use that information. So, whether it's a company's website or their social media pages, that are out there that can provide considerable information about a company to include their employees. And LinkedIn, you can, we can search about who are the different employees that work at that company, whether it's a few hundred, whether it's several thousand, those LinkedIn pages provide considerable information about that individual, as well as how they fit into that company. Then uh, just social media pages regarding an individual online, Facebook, Twitter, all that provides considerable information before the, before the scammer even establishes contact with a potential target, acquiring all that information out there really, really gives the scammer uh, upper hand. Then phase two, the scammer might try then to establish contact with a company or with an individual using that information, but continuing to collect information. Uh, They might use an email, they might use a telephone, as I mentioned earlier, they might use spoof calling. So they can impersonate somebody calling from another office of the same company or another organization. So they're asking questions and they're collecting additional information. They haven't tried the scam yet, but they're just collecting additional information. So it's very easy for the scammer to collect that information. Then they're going to take a look at, okay, what are some of the vulnerabilities I see in that target? Okay. Or what are some of the basically the firewalls, if we're talking about IT, or other types of uh, perimeter protection that's there that makes going to make this very difficult for this scam to work. And I'm going if I'm a scammer, I'm going to choose that company or that individual who I see. I, I've been able to identify a lot of information and a lot of potential vulnerabilities, and I'm going to go where I think I can be most successful. That's the first attempt, and then when the scammer actually tries to conduct the The scam. What are some of the things that work to their advantage? First of all, as I mentioned earlier, it's the trust factor. Most people, especially in the west, our Western Hemisphere here, most people will trust if someone is asking them of something or someone tells them something. They'll trust more readily than distrust. So we have the tendency to trust until something indicates to us that, oh, something's wrong here, but by then it might be too late. So mm. there's a tendency to trust, which is a great, great, great factor that a scammer can use. Then, then there's the urgency. There's Usually when a scammer needs something, some information, or, or wants you to do something, to press a button, on the, uh, type, a, type something on the computer screen, it's something very urgent. Why? Why should that be important? Well, think about it. If it's urgent, it really shuts down your ability as the victim to think about it, to ponder mm. it. Is this legitimate or not? If it's urgent, you tend to act upon that and 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 not think about it or think about it maybe later, but then it's also very late. So there's gonna be that tendency, to tr- first of all, a lot of information on you that, that they can be used to exploit. There's gonna be that trust factor. There's gonna be that urgency to get you to do something. Those are the types of things that, that will work into to their advantage. And then as we talked earlier, uh, getting people, if they do, experience something or suspicious of something will they report it many times people won't report it because they're they think well i'm going to look silly or i don't want to get anybody in trouble or i don't want to draw attention to myself or if actually what's even worse there has been a compromise Mm. you've done what the scammer wants you to do now you realize there is there's a potential of a serious compromise here maybe even more of a reason whoa i do not want to report this because it's going to look me very, really bad. Maybe I'll get fired. How important it is to establish that communication within your company or to be able to talk to other people, talk to friends. If if this is a personal situation, talk to your friends, talk to other family members. This is what's going on because it's always good to get someone else's perspective on things, especially if we're looking at romance scams. We might be looking at this in a very narrow vision because it's our emotions that are taking over uh, our ability to reason. So these are all... All different factors. The uh, The request that someone's asking from you, is it reasonable? Is it normal? Is it reasonable? If they are d- developing a relationship with you personally, what they're asking for you, is it something that seems to be reasonable, what they're asking you to do? Uh, how soon are they asking you to do this in the relationship? If you're doing this within the first or second interaction, is that normal? Would somebody normally be asking you to do that for them so soon? If if you're at the office and you get a phone call and they ask you to, to perhaps provide information or facilitate some information, is that also a normal request? Who is it coming from? Can you verify that that person says he, who he or she purports to be Even if they say they're a manager, they are maybe the head of security or uh, they are a partner company, you need to verify that at at, especially depending on what they're asking you to do. If it is a significant action which can potentially compromise the company, you really need to verify that that person is who, and and you should not be called to task. If all of a sudden there's like someone says, whoa, this person was not cooperating with me, I asked him to do it and there was a delay in this, you should be able to go back and say, I had to verify this because I was not absolutely certain that this person was who who he or she says he was uh, and I had concern. No one in your company should fault you for that, to the contrary. That should be something that is promoted within a company because there's a lot of these uh, scams. today, even is a man in the middle where scammers will contact somebody in a company who is responsible for making uh, wire transfers, making payments, and they might get themselves in, in, in what is a real interaction between a a vendor and the company. They've established relationship. They've sent emails back and forth. Perhaps they've already even made purchase orders they the scammer will get in the middle of that and then take over and send an email to the the victim because they're they're cloning they're spoofing the email and so it looks like it's actually coming from that vendor that you've been doing business with forever. and all of a sudden they ask for this transfer because they ship the products they say they urgently need it there's been a delay there's a problem here we need to have this right away so you're once again They're building that on trust because you think it's coming from them, but you have not verified it. And it's urgent because they don't want to give you time. They do not want to give you time to verify. So those are some of the big flags that we need to be considered about. You know, do I really know that this request is coming from someone who I really know? Okay. What are they asking for? Does it sound like it's a legitimate request? Third of all, if it's something that needs to be done right away, if it's so urgent, that's also something that we need to factor into is this a valid request or not.
1: So it seems like a scammer is going to prey on um, our emotions, our sense of urgency. If something is urgent, like you said before, we don't have time to vet it. Also, a little bit of our pride that they're going to be preying on because we may not want to go and ask somebody else if that is legitimate because, hey, that means we don't either know our job or we don't know how to uh, assess somebody. So it's bringing a lot of emotions, a lot of a sense of urgency or loss. We may lose out on something if we don't do something fast enough. And our tendency to want to help and be helpful to other people. So they're preying on all of that. And that kind of leads me to, based on what we've been talking about in these past couple shows, I think we should lean on our audience a little bit, Peter, and open up a bounty program. And kind of say, send us your scams. Not that you've been scammed, but if you were going to construct the perfect scam, what would it be? So we want our our listeners to put on their gray hats which means you're not a black hat, you're not doing anything negative, you're not a white hat, you're not doing anything, But it's a gray hat. This game has to be original, and then this is going to be a hard one. Because Peter's been in the business a long time, he's probably seen a lot of scams. So we want something original. It's got to be believable, and as I said, it's got to have the potential to actually pull off something. So if you meet those three criteria, original, believable, and the potential to work, we'll go through them, we'll dissect them step by step. And if it's something that you can actually pull off, we'll have a prize for you. It's going to be a tough challenge because I'm sitting across the table from a seasoned veteran, many years in the business, seen it all probably, but that just means you need to be creative about it.
0: I think this is a good exercise also because we have the, I mean, the cliche to defeat your enemy, you must know thy enemy. So you need to really be effective in protecting yourself from scammers. You need to learn how they think how they act, how they think, how they might construct these scams. And if you really begin to develop an idea of how these things are put together and use your creative juices, in this case for good, because uh, we don't want you to actually execute this scam. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's more from an educational and awareness uh, for our, our audience and listeners. And uh, I think you're going to really get a lot out of doing, doing this exercise and, and it should be a lot of fun actually.
1: So here's what you're going to do. You're going to construct your scam, send it in an email to hello at metascam.com. When we get a pool of about three to five, every time we have a pool of those, then Peter and I will take those and put them up against one another. And it's going to first come first serve. Once we have a pool that enough to actually make a competition out of it, we will dissect those on the show. And the winner of that round is going to receive at least a $20 gift card from Amazon. So again, an email is hello at metascam.com. And we're looking forward to hearing what you guys have to share. Remember, folks, you are not alone out there. Do your best to educate yourself against possible scams. Talk to your friends and neighbors about them. Because together, we can make a difference. If there's anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Our email is hello at metascam.com, and we are here to help. Until next time, this has been Andy and Peter for Metascam.com. Visit www.metascam.com for show information, archives, and more. Want to get in touch? Follow us on Twitter at MetascamShow or email us at hello at metascam.com.